Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello again. Well, I'm pretty fired up here for this episode number 17, and we've got uh, Mr. Tom Singer, and it's not pronounced Tom Singer, even though he spells his name with an H. And I met Tom some years ago at a Campus Speak uh, event, and it was really cool. We had a, had a great connection, and he actually sent me a handwritten follow-up thank you note, just like he talks about, just saying, hey, it was cool to meet you. I thought that was pretty cool, and I remembered it for some years. So uh, this time we got a prolific speaker, author, and master of ceremonies who's going to teach us some perspective and mindset really when it comes to developing relationships with folks, whether that's kind of folks you see every day on the job or folks you're just meeting in kind of a networking or or mingling type spot. And again, if you want this information faster in two minutes or less, you can go to awesomeatyourjob.com, sign up for those golden nuggets email list, or read the transcript or whatnot available at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep17. So what Tom shared some cool perspectives along the way, including one, why a simple handwritten note can still go a long way. Two, how to apply the coffee beer meal rule to declutter your contact list and make it more meaningful. And three, how to do some reframing of that I'm busy phrase into something positive. Now, now here's Tom's story. Uh, Tom, he's got an eclectic background working in sales, marketing, and business development roles for Fortune 500 companies, law firms, and entrepreneurial ventures. He is a professional master of ceremonies, motivational keynote speaker, and the author of 11, wow, that's a lot, books on the power of business development, networking, entrepreneurship, legal marketing, and presentation skills, while also serving as the host of the popular Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. He regularly speaks at business and association conferences around the United States and beyond and is presented to over 600 audiences during his career as a speaker. He lives in the amazing city of Austin, Texas, where he and his wife are the parents of two highly spirited daughters. Here's Tom. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I think we're going to have a whole lot of fun here, and, and I'm sure that you have much to speak about or write about. 11 books, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are small, though, so it really probably adds up to like six regular size books. Okay, I was going to ask, you know, what's the secret to this massive prolificness, prolificity? I don't know. I just, I like to write, and uh, I just continuously write stuff, and, and all of a sudden, you know, it's it's bookable. Well, that's fantastic. And so, I guess I'm also curious to know, so, you know, we've heard the bio, we've heard that you've got a lot of speeches and books. Tell us, uh, what do you do for fun outside of producing this wisdom? Well, I'm I'm the father of two daughters. I've been married 24 years. We make Fantastic. our home. We make our home in Austin, Texas, and so I like to eat a lot of breakfast tacos. Mm-hmm. And one of my kids is far away at college, but uh, you know I like to do things like go on hikes with the other one, or my wife and I like to go out to dinner. I mean, we're just kind of regular, you know, people who just the family's a big deal to us. That's fantastic and and encouraging because I know you do a lot of travels, so that can be difficult. Yeah, I mean, I do travel a lot. I think I did something like 32 trips last year for just over 100 nights. And you can say, oh, wow, that's a lot. But the reality is most of it is like one or two night trips at a time. And so I don't even think that they even miss me. Now, every now and then I'm up and I have like two or three 
conferences or association annual meetings or, or company things that stitch together. And last week I was gone six days. And then my wife had a three-day trip to California for family reasons for her family that touched into that. So it was like nine days. That was too much, but it doesn't happen very often. And so we just sort of say, hey, it's the, it's the downside of the business we've chosen. Yes. No job is perfect. And now I'd love to hear a little bit. You really captivated me when we met in Orlando a couple of years ago, and you were talking all about connections, genuine relationships. And you actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I sure do. You sent me a handwritten note afterwards, just saying that it was cool meeting me. And I thought that was so awesome. <laughs> so thank you for that again. Well, well, you're welcome. And, and, you know, that's the thing is, is that we live in this social media crazy world. We're all, we're all nuts over our gadgets. And the, the problem is a lot of people think that a like, a link, a share, or a follow is equal to a friendship. So, you know, they see someone speak and they send them a LinkedIn request or they, they meet for two minutes over the shrimp at a conference and they, they connect with them on Facebook or they follow them on Twitter. And then they say, oh, I know Pete. We're LinkedIn buddies or I follow him on Twitter. And it's like, well, do you really know him? In that case, have you had an actual conversation? You know, meeting someone once, Pete, doesn't make them part of your network. Meeting someone once makes them someone you've met once. And there's a huge difference between someone you've met once and someone who you've established at least a foundation of an ongoing relationship. So I, I really believe that there's a lot more to the idea of connecting than, than just crossing paths and trading business cards. That totally makes sense. And I'm so I'm curious then, if once you've met someone, what are some of the very next steps associated with building that into a genuine acquaintance, connection, relationship? Sure. Well, I mean, you have to realize that, like I said, meeting them once doesn't really do much. And what the, the problem that I see so many people do is they'll meet someone and send them that LinkedIn request. And, but that meeting was only like two seconds long or two minutes long. And so then people's LinkedIn starts to become this soup of strangers. And what happens oh, is- it well said. Like, it becomes like a phone book. You wouldn't go to Los Angeles County where I grew up and go around to every city in Los Angeles County and pick up their phone book because they still print phone books. You yeah. know, bring them back home, stack them up and tell everybody, I've got 14 million people in my network in Los Angeles. And people would say, well, what do you mean? No, you don't. And you'd say, yes, I do. Look at all these phone books. I have everybody's phone number. I could call them at any time. Well, a list of names with contact information is not a network. And I think that's the mistake that we're making in business is we're thinking, oh, I've heard. And sometimes we don't even meet them at a conference. Sometimes we just go through and look who's in my industry. We, we link, we search them. And then we start LinkedIn requesting everybody with a pulse who's in our industry. And we've created this phone book of strangers and we go, oh, I've got 2000 contacts. And it's like, well, does any one of them know who you are? If I ask them, tell me about Pete. And they'd be like, Pete, who? So I believe before you connect with people on LinkedIn and Facebook, I think Twitter's different, YouTube, all these things are different. But for mainly LinkedIn and, and I think Facebook, I like to make sure that I've had a real honest-to-goodness, long, in-depth conversation with someone before I accept or send that connection. So I like to have sat down and had a cup of coffee with you, a meal with you, or a beer with you, or the digital equivalent, because sometimes you can do a Skype call like we're doing right now or you can you know, send lots of emails back and forth, and it's like you were together. But I like that base foundation, and I have a technical term for this. I call it the coffee meal or beer rule. And that's my rule is I don't link to people, and there's exceptions, but I don't link to people unless we've had a real honest-to-goodness 35, 45-minute hour conversation 
because at least if we don't talk for a year, I'm going to remember that. Whereas like a stranger, I'm like, who is Pete? That's good. The the coffee meal beer rule or the CMB rule, but then not to be confused with the coffee meets bagel dating application, which might not be real connections. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) It's a different time, a different time. So that's your generation. Pete. <laughs> so, yeah, I believe I believe I was in the beer category. Said it was probably a red wine, if memory serves. Uh, good memory. Yum. So, so I'm, I'm with you so far. I got the, the coffee meal beer rule with regard to having it be a real connection because I'm on the receiving end of a lot of Facebook or LinkedIn invitations. And I frankly just don't even know what to do with that. It's like, I don't know you, but maybe you want to know me for a great reason or purpose, or maybe you're a fraudster trying to get a hold of my information. It's kind of uncomfortable. I usually just kind of ignore them or they're kind of hanging out in purgatory, not requested, not deleted. Uh, What's your approach with them? So I ignore, if I don't know who somebody is, I'll ignore them. If I think maybe there's a reason, I'll email them back and say, hey, could we have, before I accept this call, can can we have a conversation on the phone? And lots of times, or Skype, and lots of times people will say, I don't want to talk to you. I just want to connect to you. And I'm like, ew, that's just, you know, why? And I, I will say it's my rule. I can bend it when I want. I'll be really honest. I make my living as a professional master of ceremonies and keynote speaker. And if somebody actually is a meeting planner, Oh, yeah. Or they come out of one of the industries I speak a lot in, and it looks like maybe maybe they're fishing for somebody to hire to, to be on their on their agenda. If they send me a LinkedIn request, I'll accept it because clearly that could be the purpose. But if a pet shop owner in Topeka sends me one, mm-hmm. I, I, I have to find out why. And if they're just collecting a lot of links, I don't I don't need to be on that. That'll do it, certainly. So so now I'm curious to hear a little bit in you've got some some great messages that you share associated with kind of putting down the devices and getting to some real human engagement. Can you reflect on that a little bit? And I don't know if you know anything about the cognitive neuroscience or just the, the social milieu, but it sure seems like whenever you go and hang out with folks, there's even an Onion article, like family gathers to look at screens together for the holidays. <laughs> and, and so I thought that that's very, uh, very observant. So What's what's up with that? Are there any kind of key tips you have to to stay plugged in or some rules you recommend people follow in order to make sure they're actually talking to the folks around them? So I actually love the fact that you think I'm smart enough to have studied like brain science. Oh, I absolutely. Have, I do. No, no, no. I have no, <laughs> I have no clue. I'm an observationalist, but I'm a smart observationalist. And that is that like just imagine at a conference, right? You have 400 people come together and it used to be you had to go to your industry conferences to gather state-of-the-art information about your industry because it was the only place you were going to find it. We fast forward to 2016 and guess what? All the information you could ever want in the world is on your smartphone and on your computer through this thing called the internet. And therefore, you have no reason that you have to go there to get information because you can look it up. Heck, they're live streaming a lot of these conferences. That's another thing that I do is I, I host the live stream at you know conferences that are you know, simulcasting their event. And lots of companies, lots of associations are starting to simulcast their events. It's like a huge thing. So you don't even have to go if you want the information. So the number, the other reason people go to live events is for the networking opportunities. 
And so when they show up, they, they want to connect with other people. They want to make those connections. Maybe they could hire somebody. Maybe they could hire them. Maybe they could just you know have someone who they could share best practices with. We all dream about creating these long-term and mutually beneficial relationships with people who over time will help raise us up and, and we will raise them up. The problem is we get to the event and we sit with our coworkers. And then the other thing is we're always buried on our phones. We stand by the coffee and donuts and look at our phones. Well, nobody wants to bother you if you look busy. So then they get home and they go, yeah, it was a good event, but I didn't really meet anybody. So you have to take the ownership. And what I do when I speak at a conference is I tell people, you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room. If you pull your phone out during the break and you're in a conversation with two or three people or you're standing around and you start surfing your phone, what do the other people think of the person who does that? And it never fails. Someone in an audience will go, well, that's rude or disengaged. I go, absolutely. And then we talk about how when someone is standing with you and they're looking at the phone, we all think that they're being disengaged or, or rude. Like I'm boring them. And then I look at the audience and I say, what do you call it when you do it? <laughs> and I get that uncomfortable laugh. Zing. All do it. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. We all are glued to these gadgets. And, you know, if the buzz is in our pocket, we have to take the little sneak peek next to our cheek, right? We look down and we go like, oh, you know, let's see who that was. When we do it, we call it being efficient. We call it multitasking. We call it necessary to run our business. And so I challenge the audiences that I speak to and the companies where I do sales training on the fact that you absolutely have to realize if your people around you call it rude and you call it efficient, who should we listen to? Well said. That's a, that's a good challenge. As well as a fun turn of a phrase, sneak a peek at that which is near your cheek, was it? <laughs> yeah, because people take the phone out of their pocket and hold it right next to their ass, and they look down next oh. to it, thinking no one's going to notice. Oh, I'm, I'm reading an email, you know. And as you get older, you have to put it farther and farther down by your leg because you can't read it up close <laughs> because your eyes are going bad. So you need, you need longer arms. Oh, well, that's fun. That's, that's fun to imagine there. So we got the, the picture associated with some events or conferences, kind of mingling opportunities. And now I want to kind of zoom in on a, the typical workplace environment. So you've got a whole program you do associated with being influential at work. So I'll just ask, what are the key things I want you to do to be influential at work? I guess I'm thinking in particular that there's a lot of times when there are roles associated with project management or software development with a lot of kind of dotted line and informal kind of relationships that need to coordinate and collaborate to get things done. But it can be sort of tricky when you don't have the power or authority per se to kind of discipline or hire, fire, uh, raise, penalize another person to get them to kind of you know get on board and cooperate, collaborate with you. So I would just love it. What are the, the pro tips for pulling that off? Well, the first thing to remember is if you're working on a team, whether it's at work or, or wherever it is, but if you're working on a team, you have to realize that the other people want to feel significant. When I do one-on-one -on -one coaching or, or, or small group coaching with people and I can spend a lot of time with them where I can kind of push them and push them and push them, eventually everybody tells me the same thing. When I say, what do you want? They may not say it right away, but they'll get to it if I push them through. Everybody wants to be significant. Now, they may not use that word, but if we really dissect it, that's what people say they want. They want to make a difference. They want to matter. They want to be significant at home, at work, in their community, in their faith community. So if you're part of a team, everybody wants to feel significant. But here's the trick. You can't be significant alone in a field. It takes right. other people to decide if you're significant. And so the other people want to feel like they matter. So if you want to matter, 
the first thing you got to do is make sure that they know that they matter because otherwise we're all throwing up walls. We, have, we think everybody's judging us all the time and everything else. So one of the best things you can do if you want to be influential at work is, you know, make sure that other people feel praised, that they feel they've done a contribution because that's just going to make them come back to the table. And all of a sudden, if you look at who is beloved in an office place, most of the time it's people who make other people feel significant and people who behind the scenes are helping other people succeed. So it doesn't matter. I mean, when I go into an office place and I say, who's the most popular, most beloved person on your team? It's almost always the same person, no matter who you ask. And maybe there'll be two or three if it's a bigger team. But there's always a certain class of people that people say, oh, you know, I just absolutely love her. I love to work with her. I love being assigned a project with her. And then you go and you watch what this person does and they're making the other people feel significant and they're helping the other people do their job without taking the credit for it. And so if you want to be significant at work, if you want to make a difference, if you want to be effective, you know, when's the last time you made sure another teammate felt really, really good, like they really contributed? Oh, that's, that's so golden. So, so tell me then, what are some of the, the best practices in terms of putting those good vibes out there? I suppose, you know, saying thank you helps and, and letting others know, you know, actually it was Tom who did all this fantastic work on the PowerPoint or whatnot. What are some other sort of best practice things we can do in order to spread those good vibes? Well, I, I mean, it's really as simple as what you just said. It's, it's giving credit where credit is due. It's, you know, showing up early and staying late for people. And it's, it's doing what, what you say you're going to do for them. And then, you know, making sure that other people look good. Too often we find people in a workplace or, or in an association or whatever that sort of secretly undermine other people. Someone's yeah. the, the chair of an event and they're like, well, I just don't think this event's going to be that good. But don't, don't tell anybody I said that. And they tell 30 people that. And of course, Anytime you say anything bad behind someone else's back, it gets back to them. And sometimes people say, but, but I only told my bestie, bestie friend. Well, your bestie, bestie friend might have a big mouth and you don't know it. So my attitude is when I hear someone says something you know, negative or, or judgmental about me, I just sort of laugh because it's like, yep, they said that and I bet they had no idea I was going to hear it. But guess what? You hear it. <laughs> there you are hearing it. And we're all guilty. I'll say something snarky, and I'm like, ah, oh, shit. As soon as I'll shoot as soon as I say it, because I know that it's going to get back to the other person. So if you're going to say something snarky, as soon as you say it, you might as well think I had dang well better be willing to own that because it's going to get its way back. And you know, we've all had that blow up in our face. But you know, that's the the answer is be the opposite of that. Be the person who is always trying to make the team thrive. And it doesn't take very much. You don't have to be selfless. You don't have to give away your own credit. You just have to every day think of the people I've interacted with are people more full when they leave interacting with me than before, or are they more empty? If you've sucked the energy out of the room, guess what? You're not going to be influential. That's good. More full than empty afterwards. So I really like that expression, more full than empty, because that really puts a clear view on things for me. It's like I could imagine folks with my exchanges, I absolutely did feel more full versus those folks where I did feel more empty. And, and part of it is just a matter of their, their friendliness, their smiles, their enthusiasm, their, their thanks, their appreciation. But the other part of it's kind of just like the, the energy, you might say, that they're carrying with them. Like, like some people seem kind of, kind of nervous and impatient and uh, nothing is, is quite good enough and it seems as though something's about to collapse around them. 
<laughs> and, and that really makes me feel kind of empty after I have that exchange. Well, and it's that. And the other thing you have to realize is that anytime you deal with other people, other carbon-based life forms, the people on the other side of that engagement, they have their own stuff. Yeah. They have good stuff going on. They have bad stuff going on. And you also have to turn that mirror back at yourself and realize, I have my own insecurities. I have my own stuff. Am I putting that on the other people? Or am I just owning the fact that I'm a work in progress and just doing the best that I can? And if you're, you know, worried constantly about your own stuff, either outwardly or, or inwardly, it's eating you up, it's going to put out a negative vibe. And that comes back to haunt people. I mean, over time, people just start to say, God, I don't like to be around her. That'll do it. And, and so talking about being influential at work, you've mentioned that there are certain patterns associated with who is the most beloved and what are the, the variables there? I guess I'm curious then, does that sort of necessarily directly translate into being more influential at work? I am more beloved, therefore I am more influential. Intuitively, it seems like it would, but I'm wondering, are there any potential gaps that also need to be plugged to, to maximize influence? Well, sure. And, and I mean, beloved might be, you know, not the right word because well, I like it. I mean, I, I used it, but then when you said it, it conjured up like, ooh, wah, wah, fluffy, fluffy. Um, but the reality is, is that, yeah, we don't live in a perfect world. So, yeah, you can be the person that everybody likes and everybody wants to turn to, but you don't really carry a lot of influence because that has to be coupled with what is the history of your own work product? What is the history of the ideas that you've had succeeding? So there's never one simple answer, but you can look at it this way. You can be very good at your job and everybody can hate you and nobody will listen to you. Or you can be mediocre at your job and everybody likes you and people at least give you the benefit of the doubt. So in the end, if you're great at your job and people like you, now you've got, you've got the, the, the whole banana. Oh, that's great. It's a one, two combo. I hear you. It seems like some folks have like extreme kind of competence in a certain, I think I'm thinking about investment bankers right now, not to point a finger. I'm sure there are many kind investment bankers out there, but there's just, if there's a stereotype or an image, it's, it's kind of like, they're just like, fantastically brilliant at doing the financial stuff and rocking and rolling their, their Excel and figuring out a clever new financial instrumentation. And, and then they may be nasty to others. That's a, that's a crazy stereotype, which is unfair. But if I were to conjure up an image, I think that's what fits into that category. Well, I mean, let me give you an example. I ran, I've been following the career of a guy who is a professional speaker for a long time, and he is one of the best people I've ever seen on stage. But I've never been around him. But his reputation is, is that he's a jerk, he's condescending, and he's very difficult. Well, I recently was around him in a social situation, and A, his reputation led. And so I was watching, you know, what he said and how he did, and he was all those things. And the problem is, is that he gets hired because it's not like that's on his business card, condescending jerk. Oh. However, you know, if that's your reputation, there's people who aren't referring you business. There's people who aren't, you know, helping you succeed. So you can be very successful and be a jerk. But why? If you could be very successful and be a person who's making other people feel more full. I completely agree. And that's one of my things is like, even if at your core of cores, you don't actually care about other people at all, it's still in your best interest to treat them well and respectfully and with kindness because they'll get you farther. If you don't like somebody, you don't have to let them know that. My favorite story is when my mother passed away, 
my father had five women come up to him at the funeral or thereabouts and say, she was the best friend I've ever had in my entire life. Five different people. Wow. Here's the funny thing. One of them, she couldn't stand. It was no secret inside our family that she could not stand this person because the person was just difficult, just like a razor's edge. Just, However, she was always very nice to her and polite to her and took the time because they belonged to the same women's club, you know, to listen to her and stuff like that. She didn't like her. She didn't put her on the A-list. But anytime they were together, she was respectful. And guess what? Because the woman was so hard-edged, a lot of people weren't. She considered my mother her best friend. And I've always thought, what a great example. Just because you don't like someone doesn't mean they have to know it. Well, that's a powerful story. That really does underscore that whole point. Another powerful story that you shared in Orlando about the power of, of relationships and, and people supporting each other had to do with your daughter with some, some health difficulties. Would you be able to, to share with us a, a version of that here today? Yeah, so my uh, my 14-year-old, who is just delightful, and before I tell you this story, medically, she's fine. She's 14 years old, and she's, you know, a straight-A student, and she's hardworking, and she's just, you know, precocious as all get-up. But she was born with a condition where the bones in her skull had fused together, and the cure or the fix was that they needed to do surgery where they would remove the bones that made up much of the cap, the top of her skull. And and if they didn't, she would have a very seriously socially limiting handicap. Her head would have like an elephant. Eh, that might be too much, but like a deformity. And it was scary. It was awful. It was horrible. And we had to talk to a bunch of different doctors. And someone in our network, their first cousin was one of the top five pediatric neurosurgeons in the world. And, and he was busy developing a new way to do the surgery to correct this problem. And you couldn't get in to see the guy really quickly because – I mean, he was popular. And if you had any kids with cranial facial abnormalities, this was one of the, the physician teams you would want to go to. And we were diagnosed late. We had to make really fast decisions and it was really scary. And when you think about the fact that they're going to remove your kid's skull or a large part of it, I mean, it was horrible. And, and somebody in our network, they, they called and said, my cousin's, you know, one of this, this person, and he's expecting your phone call tomorrow. And, and, you know, you couldn't reach this doctor and you, you certainly couldn't get on his calendar within three months. And the next day I made a phone call and I always remember his assistant answered the phone and said, oh, Mr. Singer, Dr. Meltzer's expecting your call. And wow. two minutes later, I'm on the phone with one of the top pediatric neurosurgeons and my wife flew with, with our daughter to see him the next day. And we flew out, my other daughter and I flew out a few days later and, and within five days of knowing about this doctor, he operated on her and corrected the, the growth patterns of her head. And now at 14, she's, she's beautiful. She's fabulous. The bones all grew back. Everything happened the way it should have. And, you know, I always tell people, I tell this story, not because you're ever going to need a pediatric neurosurgeon, but in your life, you're going to need something. And if you treat people well and, and you share your life with people, somebody's going to have the answer to whatever your worst problem is. And that, that, that problem could be work-related. It could be community-related. It, it could be health-related. And when I, when I share this story, people come up to me all the time afterwards and say, we found our cancer doctor. We found our orthopedic surgeon. We found this through our network of people because of exactly, exactly what you talked about. And so, you know, we found the right doctor who could do this surgery because he was the first cousin of someone who we knew. And when you start thinking it in that terms, that you need something big like a pediatric neurosurgeon, 
you know, and someone you know is their first cousin. I mean, it, it's almost like you, you couldn't write this if it was part of a movie. No one would believe it. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's powerful and hits me all over again. And I think the key, the key thing I heard from that was when you say, when you, when you also, you treat them well and you share your life with them. Cause I think in, for many, it could be kind of tempting like, oh, you know, this is a personal family matter and we don't want to burden anybody with this or, or make them feel bad or, if it's like a, a problem in your maybe work performance, it's like, oh, I just I'm kind of hoping nobody notices that I have this problem. But you you summoned some, I guess, some courage, some vulnerability uh, out of maybe just desperation or, or, or sheer absolute uh, critical importance to to push past it. And and so you were able to to share that uh, fairly openly, it sounds like. Well, in, in, in my experience, and it's just my experience, people want to help each other. People yes. want the chance to help you find whatever you need to succeed, whether it's a medical issue, whether it's a career issue, whether it's, you know, you're dating and you're trying to find the right person and someone sets you up, you know, people want to help you with whatever the problem is, but if they don't know, they, they can't help. So you've got, I mean, you have to let people know what your biggest challenges are. Perfectly said. I, I love it. Thank you. Well, is there anything else that you want to to make sure that you get to share with this group or should we move over to the fast faves section? I got my seatbelt on. Let's go fast. All right, let's do it. All right, first of all, tell me uh, a favorite quote, something that inspires you again and again. So can I use a quote from my dad? Absolutely. So my, if my dad was still alive, he'd be 102 years old. Wow. And yeah, so he was, I mean, people are like, if dad would be 102, how old is this guy you're interviewing? So I'll turn 50 this year. My dad was 52 when I was born and he had the wisdom of a grandfather. And he always said, you know, be slow to anger and fast to forgive. And I'll tell you what, that has served me so well from my teenage years to almost 50 years old. And that is be slow to anger and fast to forgive. Lovely. Thank you. Could you tell us about a, a favorite study, a piece of research or experiment that you find yourself referring to often? <laughs> so, so that's like when you were asking me yeah, about once again. my study <laughs> of brain science. I have no idea. I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of great people out there doing very in-depth surveys, and I applaud them. Okay, well, that's, that works. How about a favorite book? Uh, I'm going to go old school on you, Pete. All right. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Dr. Stephen Covey. Classic. The book's got to be 25 or more years old, 20, 30 years old, but it is a classic. And anytime I coach any younger people or whatever, I tell them, I realize the book is, you know, older than you, but go read this book because it time and time again, the seven habits of highly effective people have helped me just succeed in my career. Absolutely. How about a favorite uh, website or online resource? Wow, I uh, I'm I'm really partial to iTunes, and I know that that's like what that's like the whole world. Uh, but I I love to have like the right songs on my iPad. I found that like if you're ever dealing with sadness or you're dealing with trying to get through the blues or whatever, having you know some songs that make you upbeat and that remind you of really happy times from maybe when you were younger. Uh, that's really important. And they're all on our fingertips with iTunes. And then of course, with podcasts, you know, there's so much that you can learn. So listening, I got into listening to podcasts about two years ago and then started my own a year and a half ago and never could have done either of those things if it wasn't for iTunes being right there on my phone. So what are some key songs? 
You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself if I tell you who my favorite music is. My wife told me I'm not supposed to say this publicly, but I love the Beach Boys. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> I was like, well, now I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay. Beach I, Boys. I grew, I grew up in Southern California, and my older brothers were more than a decade older than me. So they grew up with the Beach Boys, and they'd go to the beach, and they'd blast the Beach Boys when I was three and four years old. And for some reason, when I think of happy music, I think of the Beach Boys. All right. You mentioned Seven Habits. I'd like to hear from you. What's one of your personal kind of game-changing habits that's been very powerful in getting you where you are? Well, you mentioned it in the introduction. You said that we met at a conference. Yep. I sent you a handwritten note. Now, I'm going to be really honest. I don't send everybody I meet a handwritten note because I'll meet 40 people at a conference. And so you have to make decisions. Who did I have a conversation with that stood out? And I will actually make the cards into a pile. And after a conference, I'll send anywhere from 7 to 12 or 14 handwritten notes to people who I met. And it's not just, oh, they're a meeting planner. They could hire me. It's who did I have a meaningful conversation with? And I have found that has come back to help me decade later. I've had people tell me that, you know, we met at a conference and you sent me that note. I've kept it in my drawer. And now I'm the chairman of a conference and I'm hiring speakers. And you're my first call because I've had this card in my dresser on my bulletin board you know, or on my refrigerator. So I have found that we live in this world where we're trying to find shortcuts. People like to use send me out cards. Oh, I can have my assistant type the stuff in and it looks like it's my handwriting. Nobody gets a send me out card and thinks it's handwritten. They understand that you've taken a shortcut and nobody gets a text that says THX and they think, oh, wow, they really put in the time. <laughs> Show me. When you take the time to take a pen to a piece of stationery and write out, you know, recapping what you talked about, just four or five sentences, those people feel you went the extra mile. And so for me, that's been a habit that has, has made my career blossom. Well, I've got to ask a follow-up here in violation of the Fast Fives protocol, so be it. How <laughs> it's, your, it's your podcast. I know. I break well, my own rules. Break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the mechanism by which you quickly collect people's contact information, particularly their mailing address? When you're in those, you're maybe, so you're having a chat with someone for maybe it's a 20 minutes as per the coffee, meal, beer, rule. And then you, you part ways. I, I guess you, you ask for a card, or, or what do you do to kind of quickly get the info? Sure, and lots of times this happens at those two-minute meetings at a conference. You're talking, and, oh, Pete, it's a pleasure to say, hey, do you have a business card? Yes, boom, boom. You make the little finger business card exchange. You say, great, it's good to talk to you. And then when I get back to my hotel room, if it's somebody I really wanted to follow up on or thought, wow, if I send him a handwritten note, he could interview me on a podcast. He won't even start for 18 months <laughs> like you. No, um, you know, if I think I'll make a note on the back of the card about who they are, what we talked about, why I sort of thought they were in the A stack of cards. Now, every now and then, and it's becoming more common, I look at the business card when I sit down to write and it doesn't have an address on it. Right. They're just putting email. So if it's somebody who really is someone who I think is, is, I should send them a handwritten note, they were special, I'll actually go to their website, whether they have a personal website or a company website, and I will see if the address is on the website. And most of the time, there's a P.O. box or their address that's there. If it's not there, I do not stalk them. I don't like go to homeowner's records or, I mean, mm -hmm. if I wanted your address bad enough, I could find it. Uh, I don't, in which case I will send an email. And I usually will start off by saying, I sat down to write you a handwritten note, but I realized that your physical address wasn't on the card. So, you know, pretend this is a physical note. And sometimes I'll take a picture of my stationery and I'll like oh, attach great. it 
and I'll say, imagine that you got this in the mail. Uh, oh, no, it's so written, good. It's just the cover of the station. I go, I wanted to send you a handwritten note because you were really special. Pleasure to meet you, blah, 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 blah. So you can only go so far, and you shouldn't be a stalker when it comes to trying to build relationships. But most of the time, it is still on the business card. And the next step is it's usually accessible on their website. And, and, and if not, I just move on. And if they don't have a business card, what's your preferred uh, data capturing mechanism? So if they don't have a business card, I'll usually write down their name on the back of one of my business cards. And All here's right. a tip for everybody. If you use the back of one of your own business cards, turn it over to the face where your name and your contact information is and draw an X through it. Because later on, when you pull that business card out of your pocket, you, your natural inclination is only to look at the top. And now you could hand it to somebody else and your contact information, the other person goes flying away. But if you draw an X through the front of your card, you pull out the card, you go, can't give you that one. That one's got Pete's contact information on it. So I don't like when I'm at an event, I don't like to like bump people into my phone or, you know, sometimes people say they don't carry business cards. They go, oh, just Google me. Well, that's great. How in the world am I supposed to figure out how to spell makatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakatakat
So I, I just today gave a speech to a high-performance team of residential realtors. And the thing that really resonated with them as with most of my audiences is I talk – and I've been talking about this for years and all of a sudden like other people are writing they're – not, they're not doing it because I did it. They're doing it because it's common sense in the vernacular of our universe. It's not like they said, oh, let's steal this from Tom. But for years I've been talking about the fact that we use the term, oh my god, I'm so busy. You're walking down the street in your hometown. You run into an old friend from college and you say, Mary, how are you? Odds are the first words out of her mouth are going to be like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. Then she's going to tell you everything you're doing. Then she's going to say, so how are you, Pete? And odds are you're going to go, I'm so busy too. And I think it's a huge problem that we're trying to compete with each other and sort of justify who's busier as if we can somehow prove I'm better if I'm busy. If my calendar's more full, I'm better than these other people. I think it pushes people apart rather than pulling them together. So my recommendation is is that instead of answering that question, oh, my God, I'm so busy, answer the question by saying, I'm so fortunate. Then rattle off all the things you're doing. Same calendar, but it draws people in, whereas I'm so busy sets up like a total competition. I get emails after I speak from people who are like, oh, my God, I left your speech. I got back to the office. I'd been at the conference for two days, and I said to every single coworker, how have things been while I was gone? And they go, oh, my God, you don't know. I was so busy. She goes, and all of a sudden, I look at them because what I tell the audience is, I'm so busy is a faux badge of honor. She goes, and I look at them like, why are they putting on fake badges of honor? Oh, my gosh. You know, you're busy. Yeah, but, you know, we're all busy. So that's the thing that gets the most retweets and the most follow-up and, and has for years that I've been talking about it is let's not hide behind I'm busy. Everybody's busy. All right. How about a favorite role model, someone that you look up to professionally and why? So I'm a, I'm a professional speaker, right, and professional master of ceremonies. And, and, and I came into this business inspired by a guy named Harvey McKay. He wrote a All book right. called How to Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive and about four or five other New York Times bestsellers. And I've had the, I've had the honor to spend time with Harvey. Uh, I had the honor to interview him for a cover story for Speaker Magazine. And so he's, he's one person. And then another person who is just one of the best people on stage. I had the honor to share the stage with him about four years ago and got to see him at the National Speakers Association this summer. Is a gentleman named Mark Sharonbrock. And Mark has been a speaker, I mean, he's not so old that I'd say as long as I've been alive, but since I was in high school or college, Mark's been speaking for 30 years or more. And he wrote a book called Nice Bike, and it talks about the community of people in the Harley-Davidson world. If you see somebody with a Harley and you look at him and you go, nice bike. They know what you mean. And he takes that into the business world and talks about the fact that what's the secret language? How do you get people to engage, to be part of your community? What is your community? And he tells stories in a manner that when I watch him speak on stage, and I've, I've had the pleasure of being at a conference with him. I've been at conferences where he's spoken throughout my career and even before, and I've watched him on video. The way the man tells a story, every time Mark Scherenbrock is on a stage, I think I'm in the wrong business because I can never be as good as he is. And he blows my mind. And so my, my dream in life is to be as good as Mark Scherenbrock someday. I really want to check him out now. Thank you. How about a favorite way to find you? If folks want to learn more about you and, and what you're up to, would you prefer a website, email, Twitter? Uh, smoke signals. And yeah, uh, I do. And carrier pigeons. Uh, I think that the answer has got to be TomSinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. That'll take you to my podcast, Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Uh, if anybody's listening to this, I figure you got to love podcasts. Jump on over and listen to Cool Things. It'll take you to my Twitter. It'll take you to you know everything you could ever need to know or ever need to find about me. 
Oh, perfect. And a favorite challenge or final a call to action that you'd like to leave listeners with? Before the day is over, go out and make somebody feel significant. Even if it's your barista at Starbucks who always has a smile on their face, go back into Starbucks and say, you know what? I meant to tell you this morning, every time you make my coffee, I'm like a grump in the morning before I have my coffee. You just make my day better because you have such a good attitude. If you did that to just one person, somebody's day is going to kick ass because of you. And it took you all of a minute. Perfect. Tom, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun and I wish you all the best for your continued success. Pete, thanks for having me on your show. All right, that's Tom. Get out the stationery, the envelope, the stamps, the old-fashioned pen. Not that it has to be like a feather pen for calligraphy, but you get the idea. Make that personal connection with some of the, the old-school approaches, which make a bigger impact. And if you want to review some of this stuff, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep17 for the transcript and the other goodies. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.